Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who has toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello, thanks for joining me for this episode of Extra Virgin. Apologies for the recent break in transmission. To be honest, I've felt a bit flat for the last couple of weeks and it's been hard to get motivated to do anything. Even the joy that travel once brought to my life is now tinged with anxiety. It's no longer just a matter of getting on a plane. There's so much confusion around regulations with COVID and what countries are considered safe, what countries are open, whether you can get travel insurance and so much more. I haven't been abroad since December 2019 and I've only been on a plane a handful of times since on interstate trips. I'm grateful of course for those opportunities but it's not the same as leaving your own shores being somewhere where the language and the culture and the geography and the climate are different. Anyway while I've been trying to regain my sense of equilibrium and mulling over the possibility of a a trip I've been thinking about past ones. So today, rather than chatting with a guest, I thought I'd tell you about five trips that changed my life. I'm even going to read a cringy bit of my 22-year-old self's diary to you. These are in no particular order of importance or chronological order, but given the topicality of what's happening in Ukraine, I'm going to talk about Kiev first. I think it was 1990 when I visited Kiev. It was certainly not long after Chernobyl because I remember being a little bit anxious about whether it was safe. It was one of my first famils as a travel writer. A famil, if you're not familiar with the term, is an organised trip for journalists usually sponsored by tourist boards or local governments. To give you a bit of background, my father was born in Kiev. He came to Australia as a teenager and grew up in an era where migrants were firmly encouraged to become Australian. And by that, I mean Anglo-white Australians. Therefore, I grew up never learning my father's language. And I kind of inhabited this between space where my name singled me out as different, but I looked and talked like everyone else. Again, read white Anglo. The only real moments that I was ever reminded of my heritage were the occasional time my father would mispronounce a word, like he would say centimetres for centimetres, or when we'd go to my grandmother's for Sunday lunch and eat things like cabbage rolls or pork in aspic, which my brothers and I called pig's jelly, or bowls of deeply flavoured borscht. I don't know if it's because of my name, my brothers all have English sounding names, but I'd always been more interested in my heritage than my brothers. Anyway, this was a quick trip. It was three or four days, but it was to be life changing for me in that suddenly I was somewhere where my name, always the bane of my existence at school, was so ordinary and so common. And I was surrounded by a language that felt strangely familiar, even though I couldn't speak it. I found Kiev really beautiful. The architecture was well-preserved generally. There were markets full of incredible-looking produce. We went to the ballet, 
where our guide, whose name coincidentally was Natasha Miroshnyshenko, which was my surname before my father changed it when he was 18, told us that tickets cost one US dollar. So we were in this very grand theatre with a whole spectrum of people from all different walks of life. While there was a brief break in our highly organised schedule for the female, I hired a taxi or in fact it was a private car in those days that you just flagged down and for an agreed price they would take you where you wanted to go. I gave him the street and the number that my father had recalled growing up at and we drove up and down what was a pretty major road lined with high rises looking for the number and just couldn't find it. He would stop every so often and and ask a babushka if they knew where this particular number was but nobody knew. I was ready to give up long before he was. He was really determined that he was going to find this house. Finally we found the number and the house had been demolished for a Soviet-style high-rise. The taxi driver was beside himself. He was nearly crying when he dropped me back at my hotel. And so from that trip, the needle on my metre of who I was moved just a tiny bit further away from my Anglo-Australianness into what I'd always felt was otherness, but could now put a name to. Florence. This is a big one in so many ways and had such a long-lasting impact on my life. My mother's twin sister married a Florentine, a Fiorentino, and she went to live there in her 20s. Each year or so, my four cousins, all girls, would come to Australia for holidays. And to me, they were so exotic. They were beautiful and sophisticated and wore fashions that we hadn't seen in Australia, and they could speak another language. I fell in love with the idea of Italy and all things Italian, and when I was about to turn 21, My parents asked me whether I'd prefer to have a party or a ticket to Italy. And of course, I chose the latter. It was April, Easter, when I flew to Florence to stay with my aunt and uncle and my cousins in their house just near the Bobbily Gardens. It was my first solo trip as an adult and I was filled with wonder. I had my first cultural experience within minutes of my uncle picking me up from the airport. He asked me if I wanted a coffee on the way home and I said yes. He stopped at a bar and he ordered a coffee for himself and, I don't know, probably a latte or something for me. And we're standing at the Marble Top Bar when they arrive and I turn and I walk to a table and sit down, but my uncle laughs. He tips back his tiny espresso and tells me that only tourists sit at tables and it actually costs more to do so, which just blew my mind. I'd never drunk coffee standing up. Anyway, I'm going to read you a little bit of my diary from that time. It's very embarrassing. Florence, April 1988. Arrived last week. Florence is beautiful. I think jet lag had dulled my senses for the first few days. Here they have spring, a real spring, almost too corny to be true. Flowers are springing up, trees sprouting new buds all around as activity. Everything to me seems kind of soft. The light is more gentle here than in Australia and there is not the sharp contrast as in the neat perfection and symmetry of an Australian garden and the wildness of the outback. Gardens here are allowed to grow a little wild. Florence doesn't pretend to be mutton dressed as lamb. She's greying, a little unruly, but also stylish and elegant. I don't quite know where to start exploring. There's so much to see. And also I know nothing of the history of Florence. 
I can see why it was a mecca for artists though. It makes me long to be able to paint or write. Today I went to the cathedral which was the family one of the Medici's. It's spectacular with beautiful marble floors and statues. I walked to the very top which was reached by a series of narrow winding stairs, each set smaller and steeper than the last and until the top where it's almost vertical and quite claustrophobic. The view is wonderful. It's almost the tallest in Florence, rising even above the Duomo. Underneath are old relics, bits of marble and the tomb of Brunelleschi, a man of genius. Also an ancient belt buckle found in excavated tombs. We tourists look so crass and out of place, clicking away with our cameras and exclaiming over everything. I then walked to Porta Romana via the Pitti Palace, Amphitheatre and Boboli Gardens. The gardens are huge, with hundreds of winding pathways, statues in the old fort. There are young couples everywhere, lying in the fields of flowers and alcoves. Florentine houses are all similar looking, either cream or a variation of it with red clay roofs. They're basically rectangles with many windows. Auntie Jenny's is lovely, with three stories and a little skylight in the attic where I sleep. I'm a little homesick, mainly because I feel so frustrated not being able to speak the language or enjoy watching television. It would also be nicer to see the sights with someone to whom they are also new. Tuesday, 12th of April. Today I went to the markets in the Cascina. They're wonderful, almost a kilometre of stalls of every description. I bought a pair of shoes for 19,000 lira. They sold everything from tripe on a slice of bread, a great delicacy, earrings, old clothes and new leather and straw and exotic underwear. I'm not really sure what the exotic underwear was. And I've got some, I've actually glued photos in. So I have Leonardo da Vinci's proportions of the male body, uh, a postcard of Botticelli's Birth of Venus and also my ticket, my entry ticket to the Uffizi, which... I seem to have visited a couple of times. So Thursday, 10th of April, went again to the Uffizi. My favourite painting is Botticelli's Birth of Venus. I still love the Birth of Venus. Michelangelo was a great painter of men's bodies. Da Vinci was very disappointing, even though there were only a couple of second-rate paintings. Ouch! I got picked up on the way home by a very good-looking, smooth-talking Italian who walked me a very, very long way home, being very charming. We'll buy some comfy walking shoes. My feet ache. Monday. This is undated. Had lunch in the Bobbly Gardens. There is nothing I dislike about Italy. Everything feels and looks so normal to me. Hardly anything surprises me, except I'm a foreigner, an alien, a minority. I feel as though I look different. God, I love the men here. The look of them, their forthrightness, their smoothness and sense of fun. So that's all I'm going to read you from my Italian diary. However, one of the reasons that this trip was so important was I stayed for some months in Florence and went to language school and was a nanny there. Then I went to London and ended up staying 10 years and I had an Italian partner for five years of those. So I've made lots of trips to Italy since and it's always had a piece of my heart. 
Okay, Skiros in Greece. This one is pretty important too. Skiros is in the Sporades. It's one of those islands everyone thinks they've heard of or visited, but really it's not very touristy. The group includes Skopelos and Skiathos, and there's only a small military airport, so there weren't many flights and no direct ferries from Piraeus, the port in Athens, like most of the other islands. To get there, you have to catch a bus from Athens to the island of Evia, and then another bus to the port, then a ferry from there. I went there in 1998 to write a story on a place called the Skiros Centre, which is this kind of alternate holiday centre where they have classes on everything from writing to massage, um, finding your inner child, all kinds of stuff. I was pretty cynical, actually. It it all seemed a bit woo-woo to me. But it was set in a very beautiful bay called Atsitsa with huts, bamboo huts set in the pine forest or a cup and a couple of rooms in the villa right on the bay, which is where I was. And apart from a taverna, that's all there was there. Two weeks later, after doing classes, often outside, meditation and falling into the sea every afternoon, I was a convert. I was temping in London between travel assignments and had nothing pressing to get back to, so decided to stay a bit longer. I asked around and was told that there were some rooms at a taverna on the other side of the island that were recommended. A staff member gave me a lift on his motorbike and when I arrived, the family gave me a nice room just steps from the beach and I think it cost £5 a night. So I stayed and I had a bit of a summer fling with Theo, the son of the taverna owner. When I decided to go home, it was actually one of the rare days that there was a flight to Athens from the little airport, which I decided to take. I just wanted to get home to London and I really didn't want to go through the dramas of getting back to Athens by bus and ferry. I farewelled Theo and his father Thomas dropped me at the airport. However, I'd only just sat down to wait when the announcement came that because of the windy weather, the flight was cancelled. Come back same time next week, we were basically told. So I got a lift with someone back to town, went back to the taverna and resettled in my room and I also resumed my fling. And it was then in that week that I fell pregnant, realising pretty soon after arriving back in London. So I worked in London for another six months because the pound was worth nearly $2 at that time. Then I packed up the past 10 years and got tearfully on a plane back to Australia. For the next decade, I was a single mum. Then in 2012, my then partner, myself and my son went to Skiros so my son could see his father and my now husband proposed to me there in a tiny little chapel built into a rock on the beach. So I will always have a very strong heart connection to Skiros. Sri Lanka I have to confess that I haven't seen a lot of Sri Lanka, even though I spent an entire three weeks there. The reason being, I went to a health retreat and I only left it a couple of times. I've always struggled with my weight, but having been a food writer for a number of years, working on restaurant guides and reviewing for the media organisation I work for, I was really at an adhere in 2018. I had high blood pressure for the first time in my life. I had pretty near constant reflux and my joints were always aching, I guess, because of the weight on them. I just looked terrible. 
I really, really wanted to go to a health retreat, but budget was a huge factor. There was no point at all in me going to Bali for a week of detox or whatever. I needed something serious. I also needed somewhere that was far away from the temptations of restaurants and bars and all the things that had got me into this unhealthy state in the first place. So I searched and searched, but everything was way out of my budget. Then I came across Plantation Villa in Sri Lanka. Using frequent flies to get there and some savings that I had, I could just make it work. And I thought of it as an investment in my future. Just let me say at the outset that I paid in full to stay there. There are no kickbacks or discounts. So Plantation Villa turned out to be perfect for my needs. I didn't want anywhere smart and shiny, full of Instagrammers and um, or to be on programs about finding my inner goddess. I wanted something basic and earthy and as I said out of harm's way um, that had healthy food and few distractions. Plantation Villa is run on Ayurvedic and Buddhist principles. Now I knew very little about either to be honest so it was a steep learning curve for me. It's in the south of Sri Lanka inland in a small village surrounded by rice paddies and a still working rubber plantation. Many of the staff are local villagers who have been trained by the owner of Plantation Villa. The food is vegan, it's very simple and nourishing. Some of the stuff they grow on site and it's supplemented by herbal tea. So you have to give up your coffee, which I thought would be extremely difficult, but I got over it quite quickly. And there is no alcohol. So on arrival, you see an Ayurvedic doctor who will prescribe the Ayurvedic medicines uh, that you might need. They're made on site by hand and brought to you by staff every evening. The doctors are on site daily and you can see them whenever you want if you have any issues. There's yoga twice a day, occasional cooking classes, meditation and there are some talks. And there are also lots of treatments and in fact the package that I took included three treatments a day. So you would have a massage of some kind usually, sometimes a full body massage. Afterwards, you would always have a steam and the steam is quite hilarious. It, the apparatus that you have a steam in is outside and it looks kind of like a coffin. It's this wooden box and it's got a hinged lid and you hop in it and you lie down and it's, it's got a sort of grid beneath it so that the steam can, can come out. Presumably the steam comes from underneath. I didn't investigate too much, but then they put down the lid and just your head is sticking out. And they have a lovely elderly lady from the village whose job it is basically to sit on a stool at your head and fan you. And she'll always ask you if you want a a face mask while you're having your steam. So she'll pat a face mask on you. There are all sorts of treatments involving lots of oils. So you tend to go around kind of, you know, dressed in a sarong or old clothes because you're constantly covered in oil. But It's certainly extremely relaxing. The guests tended to be somewhere in the kind of centre of the wellness wellness scale, as in they were interested in natural health but not obsessed. Mainly they were there to have a stress-free chill out. There were lots of people who were interested in yoga and there were people from all over the world, but I'd say Europeans outnumbered everybody else. At three weeks, I was a long stayer, so I saw people come and go. I did sneak off a couple of times taking a tuk-tuk to the beach 
and doing a river excursion one day, but generally I stuck to the villa and to the village. So did I lose weight? Yes. I lost six kilos during my stay and I started to really just feel so much better so quickly. My sleep was better. My energy was better. I lost another 12 or so over the coming months when I got home as well. My Sri Lankan legacy and the reason that I've included this in one of my top five trips is that I no longer eat the way I did and I no longer look at food in the way I did. Now food is medicine and I can use it to heal many of the minor niggles that ail me. I have a little desire for the things that I used to eat. My taste buds really have changed. I continued with that vegan diet for a couple of years and I'm now a dairy-free pescatarian except for the rarest of occasions when I have to do a restaurant review or something and need to eat meat. The other thing I took with me was a newfound love for herbal teas which saw me start my own micro business, my side hustle as the cool kids say called St Bee's Tea. I will go back to Sri Lanka one day and do this beautiful country justice because I really feel like I haven't seen anything. As an interesting aside, my mother's family were tea growers here in the 18 and 1900s and many of them are buried here. Family law suggests that one of them, my great-great-uncle, was actually the illegitimate son of a local lass. So it's entirely possible that in my mixed-up heritage there is the tiniest drop of Sri Lankan blood. And last but absolutely not least is the Australian Outback. If there is a place where all of my preconceptions were not just challenged but smashed to smithereens, it is here. It was 2017 when I did a Famille on the Outback Way, which is a 2,700 kilometre trip of mostly paved road right through the centre of Australia from Winton in Queensland to Laverton in WA. In typical humorous Aussie fashion, it's known as the world's longest shortcut. I only did as far as Uluru in the Northern Territory on this trip, but the 10 days definitely shifted something in me. Since then, I've done the Queensland part of this twice. Being a city girl who until that trip had never been further west than uh, around three hours from my city, Brisbane, I always imagined that people who lived in the bush suffered from a lack, that they were culturally impoverished but the outback is alive there is so much going on in these small communities so many events and so many talented people who've moved there i loved winton and have been back twice since it's got a really kooky wild west film set feel and in fact lots of australian films have been filmed in the area There's so much history in the Australian outback as well as art and music like our beloved Walsing Matilda which was written out here at Winton in fact. I also imagined the outback was all dry until I did a sunset cruise down the gorgeous Thompson River in Longreach which is a river that never runs dry. By the way you have not seen sunset until you've seen an outback sunset. I have never seen sunsets like that anywhere on the planet. Then there are dinosaur fossils and historic homesteads and if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on your viewpoint, you might see the mysterious Min Min lights that are said to float and dance a few metres from the ground. We actually went out for a drive looking for them, but it's that kind of thing that comes to you. You can't go to them. The outback skies are huge and you can see forever during the day. 
And when you see that intense blue contrasted with the red earth, you understand why the outback has always attracted artists. And then at night, the skies are so clear. There's no pollution, no lights. And who knew there were so many stars? It's like a bag of diamonds spilled across black velvet. I also always imagine that traveling in the outback was hard, that you need special skills and to be a really hardcore camper and a bush mechanic and an experienced four-wheel driver. But the roads are largely pretty good and everybody is aware of what everybody else is doing and where they are at any given time. So it's quite safe. And best of all, there are plenty of places to stay that offer real beds. In the outback, I got to learn something about the incredible indigenous owners of this land and realise how ignorant we've been for so long, not valuing what they could teach us if only we'd asked, from land management to natural medicine. And I stood in front of Uluru and I was awed in a way that no man-made structure anywhere in the world has ever awed me. Australia's outback for me was the most spiritual place I've ever been. I honestly felt a tingling in the soles of my feet traveling all the way up my body. It was as if I'd been transported to the very birthplace of Mother Nature. I felt a moment like I finally got something, the gears shifted. It's something I've never felt in a church or in front of a world-famous artwork or any kind of man-made structure anywhere in the world. I feel so fortunate. I feel like if everyone had the opportunity to walk on the most ancient earth on the planet and to meet its caretakers, its guardians, the world would be a very different place. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know it's something a little different. Thank you for indulging me as I talked about places that have had an impact on me. It's a timely reminder that there's a lot of beauty in the world and many more adventures still to have. I will put some notes on the website of some of the places that I've mentioned. Thank you for listening and please do share Extra Virgin Podcasts with your friends and like and rate us. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.